What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Today, we're going to get a little chemistry lesson, <laughs> one that, uh, that I hope you enjoy. Uh, I learned a ton. Chemistry is the only subject I ever failed um, and had to go to summer school for. So um, it was fun to, to go down that road again and try to, try to learn what everything means. So we're, we're talking to the CEO of Climate Neutral, Austin Whitman, uh, today about uh, carbon emissions and, and how his company is making it easier for brands and companies to um, combat their, their carbon emissions. And it's a really great conversation because it, it comes at it from a very elementary level because, you know, I hear, always hear these trending words about carbon, carbon emissions and climate change. I mean, we hear, we hear all these big terms and, and sometimes it's uh, we need to define them a little bit, right, before we can really understand them and, and do something about it from, you know, an everyday standpoint level. So uh, I love the, uh, the conversation he had. I love the, I love the way he, uh, he kind of dumbed down some things for me and, 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 and uh, really helped me out in understanding a lot of this stuff. Hope you really enjoy the conversation. A little bit about Austin is that he spent the last 20 years of his career working in early stage environmental markets and technologies. He also worked in policy with policymakers as well. His first venture into carbon offsetting uh, began in grad school uh, with a program that he started to sell carbon offsets to his classmates. So we we go we kind of start with that a little bit at the genesis of, of what that was. But he he firmly believes that solving the climate crisis uh, demands participation from all of us. But really, really businesses have uh, a big role that they can play because they can make the most impact the quickest. Um, he has a joint MBA and MEM from Yale and a uh, BA from Dartmouth. And now he's the CEO of Climate Neutral. And uh, they are empowering brands uh, to fight against climate change and uh, showing them how you know paying for their carbon pollution is, is actually cheaper and a little bit easier than, than one might think. So Climate Neutral um, is a really interesting organization. And I hope you guys get a lot out of it. And again, if you ever have any questions... Any thoughts, um, just email me, grant at causeartist.com, and have a great week. Bye. So I always usually like to, to start with the journey uh, of how individuals get where they are. And uh, um, before you were CEO, right, you had to go through a lot of different, I'm sure, hurdles and obstacles and lessons learned. And I, I think maybe we could start with selling carbon offsets to your students at Yale when you're <laughs> getting your graduate degree. Maybe let's start there and see it, what was what was that, what was that project and, and what did that entail? Yeah, so this goes back obviously many years to I think 2005 or 2006, and we uh, I, I was in in business school and also was part of a program at the forestry school at Yale. So it was it was a joint degree, and mm -hmm. there was a small group of us who were in this program. I think there were about twelve of us, and we were sort of the you know the crunchy capitalists at the business school and we were like the capitalist crunchies at the forestry school. And so we, we bonded a lot because we didn't necessarily fit in directly with either of the, 
either of the crowds. But I will say just, you know, the, the, the program there is like, this is a quick advertisement. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, just the yeah. merger of business and environment. It's just, it's really, really cool. I just, I loved it then. And it's, it's expanded significantly even since I was there. But what happened when we were there was people started talking about carbon and started talking about things that they could do about it. And, mm-hmm. and in many ways, I think the revelation that people had then is similar to what we're trying to get businesses to do now with climate neutral, which is you're, you're, you're doing something. And in, in the case of, of grad school, it was you're flying to Japan, China, uh, mm-hmm. Korea, Australia for study abroad trips that weren't offered last year, but now they're being offered. And so there's there's a change that happened. And because of that change, there's more carbon emissions. And let's not let's not allow ourselves to just pretend that that doesn't have an impact on the climate because it does. And now it's it's small and it's individual, but it's it's certainly an impact. So we went around to different classes and got professors permission to do like a five minute blur, basically explaining why carbon was a problem and mm-hmm. explaining what a carbon credit was and is and signing people up to to buy carbon credits that were equal to the amount of carbon that would be emitted in their flight and so in general it was funny like i think people really just sort of responded to it well and and we we probably got i would say 40 percent participation rate uh, maybe 50 percent, and we also got some money from the school because they recognized that they played a role by setting up the programs. So mm-hmm. it was a cool way to sort of test the test the responsiveness uh, among admittedly a, a small population, but a responsiveness to this to this offer essentially that you've you've caused an environmental problem and now we're giving you an easy way to to address that problem. And what, when you first talked to whether it was professor or individuals at, at, at the school and learning about about carbon, right, and, and and what exactly it is, right, and why it's negative. I guess can be have negative effects to the environment. Can you explain a little bit that for you know the ignorant people out there who who hear these key these keywords, right, carbon emissions and, and lower yeah. all these things, right? It, it it becomes overwhelming if you're not sort of like a scientist, right? Or you didn't go to school for this type of thing. Can you explain a little bit what what carbon emissions actually are and why they are important? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's the basis of of climate change basically. Um carbon is ca- carbon itself is a naturally occurring material obviously. It's it's everywhere in the world um and everything that we pretty much everything that we touch and see and use in the world has has carbon in it. Carbon the element would be C on the periodic table if anybody mm-hmm. was a if anybody remembers their high school chemistry <laughs> <laughs> and um, and has nightmares about it probably. Yes. But um, <laughs> it sounds like the only did. class I ever went to summer school for. So <laughs> I, right? I, I know it fondly. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably not because you loved it so much. <laughs> well well so carbon uh, is in everything and when you burn fossil fuels, natural gas, fuel oil, gasoline in your car, um, natural gas would mostly be burned for for heating and then for industrial processes. When you burn those when you burn those fossil fuels, they all have carbon in them. They're basically all just like different versions of carbon chains. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is why they're called hydrocarbons, which people have probably heard about hydrogen and carbon. And when you burn them, the the, the process of combustion releases 
carbon dioxide, CO2, okay. which, um, which when we, it's funny, when we talk about carbon emissions, we're actually talking about carbon dioxide emissions because it's basically carbon in an airborne form. Which CO2. seems bad because every time you hear carbon dioxide, it's usually not a healthy thing to ingest. Well, carbon monoxide is what kills people. Carbon and dioxide, dioxide. Gotcha. is, and that's CO, CO2, carbon dioxide with two oxygens is harmless to breathe, but you can't, you can't only breathe it. If you breathe just carbon dioxide, you would, you would also die, but it would just, it would just asphyxiate you. Um, terrible. And terrible. Yeah. Uh, which is why, but you know, in the air, there's a whole bunch of different stuff, but oxygen is the key thing that we breathe. Carbon dioxide is what plants take in gotcha. and they release oxygen. So they sort of turn CO2 back into, into oxygen by absorbing the carbon and the carbon becomes part of the plant, the carbon, the C. So, um, so yeah, we've got a lot of carbon dioxide out there and, and you know, it, what, what, what's interesting is people, people may hear carbon dioxide or carbon. They may also hear a ton of carbon and it's really hard to get your head around what a yep. ton of carbon is because <laughs> you can't thinking, see it, right? I mean, you can't see it, but, here, but here's a good, a good sort of visual, which is that a ton of carbon dioxide would approximately fill the Washington monument. So picture the Washington monument, make it a balloon. Okay. And fill it up with gas, and that would weigh about a ton. Fill it up with carbon dioxide, sure. gas, and that would weigh about a ton. And every individual, every, every American individual, is responsible for at least twenty-five tons a year mm. of emissions. So twenty-five Washington monuments stacked up next to each other uh, is the volume of carbon dioxide that an individual American would emit. So it's a really like th- that maybe so spatially make helps it make a little bit more sense. Yeah, yeah. And, and the problem with that is is that our environment, our earth, our plants, our trees, they can't they can't take that much in, so there's leftover that go into the atmosphere and cause the problem. Is that you, I mean, obviously it. I'm just yeah. trying to, you, you trying got to it. Yeah. <laughs> and and it gets a little more complicated because carbon dioxide is about three fifths of the problem. There are other gases, which is why people will often say greenhouse gases as opposed to carbon. There are six major sources of uh, airborne pollutants or or substances that contribute to carbon dioxide. I won't go into what those are because it gets more into the alphabet soup of chemistry. But yep. but but basically, carbon dioxide is the main one, and then the rest of it, the other two fifths, is from other gases. Unfortunately, those gases are all more powerful than carbon dioxide at causing mm-hmm. climate change. So imagine imagine if you have you know like your your summer weight blanket on your bed and then you have a winter weight blanket that's exactly the same size but it's just a whole lot warmer. That's yeah. essentially what those other gases do and they call it global warming potential. But when we talk about carbon, it's basically all of the greenhouse gases converted into carbon dioxide equivalent units. So it just simplifies the whole thing. So these gases are out there, carbon dioxide's out there, these other gases are out there. They enter the atmosphere and they they increase the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm which we have learned and st- scientists have been studying this literally since the 1800s. Um, but we've learned that, you know, what used to be called kind of the greenhouse effect. We've learned that these gases in the atmosphere um, to continue the blanket analogy, they act like a big blanket over the earth and they trap heat. So all the sun's energy that comes in to the earth uh, essentially gets trapped here. And so it does increase the average, average temperature 
of the earth. Now it gets a little bit more complicated even because just because the word, the world is, is on average warmer. And that's how we think about you know, the, the total effect of climate change. Doesn't mean that everybody is necessarily warmer. Mm-hmm. You can have, you can have early winters, you can have long winters, you can have places that actually get colder, but on average, the earth for the average, average person is, is warmer. I mean, one, one people probably know the polar vortex, right? Polar yep. vortex is something that is predicted to happen more frequently because with climate change, because there is warmer water up in the pole, the North Pole. And whereas cold air would get previously just, you would just sit there, the warmer water create causes heat, which then enters the atmosphere, which then essentially th- think of it like you're kind of breaking the seal of the cold air that would have just sat over the poles. You break that seal and the cold air then pours down over the over the over america so while so while the north pole is warmer uh missouri may be much much colder because it's basically stealing the stealing the cold from from the north pole so so on average the world is warming but you have these funky regional patterns to weather that really imbalance ecosystems as well as lifestyles frankly because people suddenly have to deal with weather that they aren't used to yeah and that's a i think sometimes it can be this is just how 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 i look at it that global warming and climate change are kind of different like i look at climate change as this kind it's sort of it's sort of very it has many layers right like you said it's just not about weather being warmer or colder to me it's it's more about our oceans becoming filled with more trash that means our the ocean's ecosystem can't perform as well so now you have different parts of the world affected if they depend on the ocean that much right and if you're in higher altitudes you're breathing different air than people that are in lower altitudes so like i to me i don't know that i feel like climate change is just it's hard to wrap your head around because climate change is going to affect people in india more than it's going to affect a person in iowa right like within the next so many years just because they live in a different region and they're surrounded by different different entities and <laughs> different things going on much more people in in a sm- like a, a smaller area where you have dense cities and dense populations does is climate change or carbon like affect regions different than other ones based on where a person lives or the density of the city or if they're inland or around water? I know that's a long question. No, it's 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 exactly the right question to be asking. Unfortunately, climate change. So, so like to your original point, so, so global warming and climate change, the term global warming has pretty much been phased out in yep. favor of climate change because climate change simply simply saying global warming doesn't capture the, the full nuance of it and climate change is is really kind of the the umbrella concept for yep. our earth's climate is changing and it changes in in different ways in different places and unfortunately what when people look at the effects of climate change they tend to look at the economic impact and unfortunately the right. economic impact is much greater on poorer people in mm-hmm. the world. And that's for two reasons. One, they tend to live in regions of the world closer to the equator that are going to get hot. And they tend to live in regions of the world that have fewer resources already. And right. when you take climate change and you cause a drought in an area that already has very little water, right. the impact is very, very significant. The other reason is that rich people just have the money to adapt. Mm-hmm. So if an American, if the average American, I mean, the, the American economy, let's just, let's just take a hypothetical extreme scenario. Okay. Um, if you, if if Miami suddenly lost thirty percent of its land area because of 
climate change because the sea, the ocean just rose, we would deal with it, right? Because the American economy is is you know close to a twenty trillion dollar economy. Federal government would step in. Miami would have would have money to deal with. Not that it's not a massive, massive, but but they can adapt exactly. Mm -hmm. Adaptation is exactly the word, and 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 they could they could handle it. But if um, you take an island somewhere that's going to get completely swept out with all with with basically no land above water any above, above the water anymore, people. People suffer. They they either they either die or they you know they have to migrate somewhere uh, and have essentially no place to live. And so having the money to adapt is a luxury that rich people can afford. Which so that's sort of the second reason why climate has disproportionate impacts on on poorer countries. And so when after sort of let's take a little bit of a step back. Well, since now I can pass chemistry, I think, which is great. Is what was at, after sort of Yale? What was your path then to coming on board and sort of being a leader for for the climate neutral certification process, which we'll get into. But what was what led up to that after sort of uh, grad school? Yeah, so you have to kind of take some of the chronological context in mind, which is that I left grad school, graduated in 2007. And at the time, there was a um, emerging amount of interest in investing in in renewable energy and in carbon yeah. markets. And around the world, it appeared that you know between what was going on in Europe with the emission trading system, the EU ETS, and then in the US, we were working on legislation to deal with climate change. It, it appeared that the world, uh, the developed countries in particular, we're going to be starting to take climate change seriously. So the work that I did for the next three or four years was all focused on the institutional flows, flows of institutional capital into carbon and renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And so I spent some time advising large institutional investors and then moved over to work at an asset management platform that focused on on carbon. And the financial crisis hit in 2008, really, but mm -hmm. sort of played out over 2009, 2010. And I basically, we all watched as the legislative drive in the US sort of faded and the legislative drive to, to get carbon, to get climate change taken seriously. And people really focused much more on the toxic asset relief program, TARP, yep. and you know, yep. bank bailouts and auto bailouts and everything else. So climate sort of faded into into the back of people's minds. And I just, you got your your, your jobs are often sort of exposed to, to what's going on in the broader economy. And that was true yep. for me. So I ended up becoming a consultant and working on renewable energy and, and consulting to utilities and consulting to environmental nonprofits on, on strategy. So I did that for about the next four years and then went and moved over to a clean tech company that was working on energy efficiency and did a lot of work in policy in the U.S. around uh, energy efficiency programs, which is sort of a it's sort of a, a wonky subject, but has actually been one of the most successful examples of state policy leading to real environmental progress in the Can form of an example? Yeah, I will. Um, so around about 2006, 2007, a bunch of states started passing legislation to require that their utility companies, um, okay. the, the companies that, that, that generate and, and deliver electricity as well as natural gas, that those utility companies help customers save energy. And it was the beginning of a pretty amazing 
amazingly successful wave because what's happened since then is uh, we've seen a tremendous increase in the overall energy productivity of the of the economy and we've also seen what's called flat load growth which means that we're not consuming at, at each passing year we're not consuming more electricity we've basically flattened out demand for electricity mm-hmm. because we've invented and then deployed technologies uh, like led light bulbs which right. didn't exist back then but they do now and they exist because because of the the commercial incentive for companies to invent them and uh, and then and then roll them out so led light bulbs would be a great a great example they're you know 90% more efficient than their incandescent counterparts and perform way better i mean my kids have a color changing nightlight which is sort of mind blowing yep. it goes from like you know red to yellow to green and purple yep. like you yep. couldn't do that with an incandescent bulb I'm like man this thing is cheap it uses no energy and it's cool um, yeah. so led yeah, light my bulbs my friend did that with his christmas light okay he just yeah. has the led he's like the normal season they're just regular led lights but in christmas i could just change them to red yeah. and green he's like i don't have to change my lights anymore so exactly like, yeah <laughs> i uh one of my um one of my uh, nephews has a led toilet seat which changes colors and explain. it's like a, a combination yeah explain what do you right? mean? <laughs> it's it's got it's i actually have not gotten close enough to it for obvious <laughs> reasons to really figure out how it works but it's 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 like imagine a, a nightlight and a toilet seat combined and that's okay. what this thing is and so you walk into the bathroom and the toilet seat is glowing but also changing colors and so your aim is impeccable essentially is what it's for, right? It's it's a high it's a high performance device. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just say that. <laughs> oh so I, I I guess the and the big thing is that it's look, we have consumers and we have businesses, right? And I think we're all sort of in this together to to understand stuff better and to allocate our dollars more properly and for businesses to act more properly as well. And can you talk a little bit about the certification, what you guys are up to now? What does that look like? Who does that help? And and what is it? Why is it sort of the time now that is a technology has caught up to where we can certify, you know, businesses now at a much more grander scale uh, of what they're doing to combat the carbon emissions? I think the the technology to certify is really just, it's it's necessary, but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Meaning we have to find a way to certify, to get companies through our process scalably. And the organization that we've built has been very, very dependent on things like video conferencing and social media mm-hmm. uh, and web-based software development tools that didn't right. exist 10 or 15 years ago. So in some senses, like all the, all the enabling technologies have been really critical, but they're not, but so, so they're necessary, but they're not, they're not sufficient. And what's, what's um, it, meaning, meaning that they alone are not kind of going to help us solve the problem. What's really, really critical is that we, we have a moment in time right now where people, humans have never understood climate change better and been more motivated to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, I've been trying to sort of get different people's opinions on why now versus five years ago or 10 years ago. And I don't think I've gotten anywhere close to kind of the, the perfect answer, but obviously there are many, many theories. And you know, one of them is that the media covered climate science uh, with the sort of the, the, the landmark uh, IPCC report, which, which um, 
is the Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Change, which came out a couple of years ago, which, which really, which laid out a timeline that basically mm-hmm. we have 12, 12, I'm sure you've heard 12 years, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard the, the concept of 12 years. Like that was the first time that a number really stuck in people's heads because people had tossed around 1.5 degrees and 2.5 degrees and three degrees. And the, you know- But just, just, to, of, give con- yeah, just yeah. to give a, a little bit of, of context to it- yeah. For people who aren't familiar with it, that 12 year mark means what exactly, right? Is that when you start to see, is that when we start to see real effects that we've never seen before? Is that the idea? 12 years, honestly, is is a bit of an arbitrary number. Right. But it's, yeah. it's basically when people look out at policies that are in place and look at the current emission trajectories, so how much that atmosphere CO2 is increasing based on how much we're emitting, that 12 years is essentially the the window of time that we have to act in in which and really start to bend the curve downward um, or else we are we have 100% sealed our fate like we are guaranteed to to be headed toward higher degrees of climate change higher degrees of, of average temperature increase than than would be considered by scientists to be to allow us to kind of somewhat simulate or re- re- replicate the life that we that we currently know. So, so basically, in 12 years, we've got to do something major to the economy. We've got to do something major, potentially through policy. And we've just got to reshape how we are, how we're, how we're looking at our emissions, and and do something about it. It feels like it's it's more of a global problem than an American problem, right? So, is it if if one country does it? It's not going to be enough, right? It sounds like we would need a lot of countries to be involved and, and take sort of similar routes. And it seems like just like people, right, and, and politi- politicians are divided. Countries seem to be divided, too, on what to do, what not to do, what's the best route. I mean, there obviously are there are some some pillars and some some big benchmarks that I think everybody agrees on. But is something like is something like a, a global like certification something that's needed is there anything out there like that that can maybe put a stamp on on something where that holds so much weight i mean you're right that it takes all countries to act but the the problem or the pattern that we've seen throughout history is that it's you know it, if you if you aren't willing to act first then everyone sort of waits for you to act before they feel like they have to act and and there's been a long long series of negotiations around what developed countries versus developing countries should have to shoulder in terms of the burden for, for climate, right. but we're, we're all going to be affected. And, and so, and, and we all contribute to the problem. And, and so every company has to act. And this is what's been so messy about the international process is that you basically have to get countries to all agree on how much of an economic burden they will, they will shoulder. So, you know, if, if the U S is basically not the largest emitter, but they have emitted the largest amount throughout history and they're most responsible for atmospheric carbon. Should other countries be allowed at some grace period to be able to emit and catch up, so to speak? Because you know, economically, more countries are becoming more economically advanced, but they're to get to that point, they're going to use <laughs> more carbon, right? So we can't, we can't necessarily tell other countries not to do it and further their economy because we've already done it, right? It's kind of a yeah. weird thing to tell people they can't advance <laughs> that after would be, we've done it, right? That would be the argument, but I, I guess the counter to that is sh- sure. But in the in the process of advancing, we have invented a whole bunch of technologies yeah. Yeah, that for sure allow us to allow people to have high qualities of life without high carbon emissions. So we've sort of we've sort of by through technology innovation, we've we've done a reasonably good job, I think, of decoupling economic growth from from carbon. 
mission growth. But but still, I mean, that's that doesn't hold true nearly any nearly everywhere, anywhere close to everywhere. And so um, we have we have aspirations to basically grow this as, as big as we possibly can. And if we had to administer the certification in the largest consumer markets in the world, I think we'd, we'd find a way to do it and, and to make it work economically. I mean, because at its core, all we're trying to do is just to get companies, give companies a way and a reason because they don't have a political incentive right now or a policy right. incentive. Give them a reason to to start paying attention to their carbon footprint and then doing the right thing, which is to, to address it by both the combination of internal reduction efforts as well as as well as offsetting. What's the what is the actual certification do? Does it does it assess the current practices of a business and then it allocates a certain price on let's just take like a railroad example. Like let's just take like a shoe company or something like that. You do you look at the process of what it takes to make that shoe and then says, hey, you you have to put this much back into the company or whatever to offset those like can you just give us a real world example of of what it actually means right yeah to offset yeah. your emission yeah yeah so let's stick with a shoe company let's let's stick with a simple shoe company that makes makes a running shoe that has r- rubber and nylon in it okay. um, that shoe company causes emissions from a, in a variety of ways and the the process that we take companies through basically estimates what those emissions are and we've we've decided that what we want to do is allow companies to estimate what their footprint is because if if you require companies to count actual emissions it'll be years and years before <laughs> we get companies on board right i mean if yeah. i came to you and said I need you to go measure every gram of carbon that you generate versus, you know, I came to you and I said, I'm, I'm willing to just estimate what your carbon footprint is. Like, and, and then I asked you to kind of join a program, which would you say yes to? You'd say yes to, to the estimation, not, not yes to, okay, I'm going to dedicate half my life to, to counting, counting carbon. And that's pretty much what we found with businesses is that it's statistically valid to, to do this. And if it opens up, an economic floodgate, which is encouraging companies to actually count their carbon and then pay to clean it up, then there's a huge potential for us to make it, make a dent on on climate and, and on, on on greenhouse gas emissions. But to go back to the shoe company, so the so the shoe company has has rubber and nylon as its two inputs. The shoe company also has employees that drive around places. They also have delivery trucks that take shoes from the factory to to the boat, from the boat to the stores. The the shoe company has energy that they use in the course of turning raw material Mm -hmm. rubber into those finished soles. So there are all these different ways that throughout the supply chain, starting with the very kind of material, raw material extraction, and then then forming it into the finished product and then distributing the, the product out to market. And it would be dizzying again to try to count all those up individually, but there are ways that the life cycle assessment profession have come up with to to estimate what those what those sources are. So we or what those emissions are. So we'll tally them all up for for the shoe company, and at the point at which we've identified what their footprint estimate is, we basically say to them, "Look, that was last year's carbon footprint. It's too late to go back and reduce that. So you've got to offset the entire thing. And in order to get the certification, you've also got to identify some steps that you're going to take." 
to reduce your footprint going forward. And they submit that plan to us, the reduction plan to us, along with a proof that they've purchased as many offsets as it takes to offset last year's footprint. And that footprint, uh, or sorry, that offsetting process involves going out and purchasing carbon offsets from either on, on their own via a network of brokers, or they can come to us and say, hey, we'd like you to buy them for us. Mm-hmm. And We'll go out and then basically uh, you know, p- purchase offsets in, in this, whatever amount is, is required by the company. And what those offsets do is they create a incentive for somebody somewhere to reduce carbon emissions that had ar- have already been generated by the company. And they'll reduce them in places that are different from where the company operates. Uh, who uh, okay. is, a, is a global problem. And you know it's okay to reduce a, a ton of CO2 in Massachusetts, even if the source is in, is in California, because from an environmental perspective, it's generally the same thing. From a climate perspective, it's, it's generally the same thing. So an offset project developer will go and they'll put up a wind turbine or a solar farm, or they will plant mm. a tree or they'll they'll plant some seagrass or they'll cap a landfill they'll do something somewhere that leads to a a ton of carbon gotcha. um, being either avoided or being sequestered we go back to the, the tree example trees you know, breathe co2 they sequester carbon and that sequestration process is you know, studied and um, and quantified and and so any one of those offset projects will then produce a certain number of tons of, of carbon reductions and so if that shoe company emitted 10,000 tons in 2018 they have to buy 10,000 tons uh, those those emissions are already up in the air gotcha. and now we're doing something somewhere to avoid put that 10,000 tons uh, back in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would be a lot of trees <laughs> probably right well you can do it through, yeah. I mean, it's you can do it through uh, various ways. It's, it's 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 less than you than you might think. So, I mean, like an acre of farmland is said to be able to to produce maybe maybe one or two tons of car, of carbon reduction. So that's not it's not like an, an, an inordinately large number. Um, and and there there are ways to do it where you're taking advantage of of natural systems like agriculture and forestry, but you're also tapping into some of those higher potential gases by by destroying them or by capping methane from a landfill that they get you some pretty good, pretty good bang for your buck. So the idea that we have is that you kind of build this like a portfolio and you're doing a combination of projects for any individual company. So that that's, so just from your experience is, are there top pillar te- things that you guys recommend, people, like trees, or is there is there sort of top things that businesses can do that like suck up the most carbon, like for trees, for example? But is there like other things better than trees that are wind farms or solar or are sort of those things stuff that a lot of businesses do because that's the the best the best way to do it? Or is there other things that are being people are doing businesses are being creative with to to have the offset happen. Yeah, it's a good question. The 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 concept of quality comes up a lot. What's a quality carbon offset look right. like? And when you say best, it to me says sort of what's the highest quality? And quality is different things to different people. Someone might consider a Ford pickup to be the highest quality and somebody thinks a Lamborghini is the highest quality. Right? It depends on what right. they're what they're looking for. And so a carbon offset is really, you know, t- technically it's a ton of carbon. And the question is really, as long as that ton of carbon is verified by a third party and we've applied as many possible tests to whether that 
ton of carbon is actually being reduced by that by that project. Then then quality comes down to what other things happen when that project is done. And so, as you can imagine, if a project involves planting trees, what else happens when someone plants a tree? Well, you get animals that then come and live among mm-hmm. the trees. Mm-hmm. You get you get landscapes that are improved by reducing erosion because you know now you have roots growing in the soil. Um, so there are other things that happen when when you plant trees. Similarly, when you do a project that involves switching out charcoal burning cook stoves with uh, with cleaner alternatives, there are human health benefits and convenience benefits to to the people who actually use them. So yes, you still are measuring your offset in terms of the ton of carbon, but there are these other things that happen in addition to the the, the ton of carbon being reduced. And those are in some people's minds, um, all measures of, of quality. And what companies tend to do is think about the combination of price, which is how much is the offset costing me, plus the, I guess you call it the optics, right? I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. the marketing the marketing angle. We, you like to talk about projects that fit with your business or are happening in a region where you also have operations or yep. uh, have good great photos that, that people have taken of the projects. So there are other other reasons why companies will shop around for, for a given type of project because they kind of, they just like them more. When, when Tesla first came out and then you have like the Rivian uh, electric trucks coming out and you have these electric vehicles all coming out, the government basically gives like a tax credit to people buying that. Well, I mean, it, it, it's different for, for different vehicles, but originally that's sort of, what happened for for like Tesla for people to be able to to kind of afford them and get like a tax break for buying environmentally friendly vehicles? Do you see any way that let's say a business is certified climate neutral, right? Could they get some sort of, of tax break from from policymakers as a tip to the hat that you know these companies are making a real effort, a light, just like these car companies or any other you know subsidy that's given to you know, to a solar farm manufacturer or something like that. Do you see any way that, that policy can play a big role in in what you're doing and, and what businesses can do going forward? That's a difficult question to answer. The, the reason those electric car subsidies exist is obviously lobbyists um, succeeded at getting policymakers to agree. <laughs> but, you know, wind and solar have also benefited greatly from, from tax credits, but but you can't sort of look at the at the tax incentive landscape without looking at fossil fuels, which have received just obviously the the most yeah. massive share of of the subsidies. And when people tally them up, it's it's just orders of magnitude higher what you know, tax incentives developers get for for extracting fossil fuels. So the question is really like if a company decides to be carbon neutral. Um, and or get certified by us, would that company be able to reap tax uh, tax benefits somehow? And it would, in essence, be, if you think about it, be just the same as taxing carbon, right? So uh, yep. I guess what, what I'm thinking is like, if we can't p- pass a policy that taxes carbon, I'm not sure we're going to pass a policy that provides a tax incentive for lower carbon companies, because it would do the same thing. A tax on carbon charges companies more for you know for carbon emissions and a a tax credit for companies that are carbon neutral would just simply tax companies less now from a from a budgetary perspective at the federal government like it's it's a different would be a diff- different math but but um but fundamentally i think you know the the politics are going to be very somewhat similar 
so um, yeah, so so I, I don't I don't see that as being a major incentive for companies, but it also it's important to to put in context the amount that it costs to achieve what we're asking companies to do today, which is a fraction of a percent of revenues. It's not like we're talking 20% of revenues where, you know, a 20% tax break could equalize them out. We're basically talking about a fraction of a percent. And so our hope is that businesses are able to justify this simply on the basis of, um, you know, maybe they call it, maybe they would call it morality. Maybe they would call it being able to substantiate their their sustainability claims. Um, And separate yourself in the marketplace. Exactly. Maybe it gives you some competitive advantage. Um, maybe it's because your competitors are doing it and you want to just kind mm-hmm. of match up to what they're doing. So our hope is that you know, when, once people actually get their head around the fact that, that yes, climate's a massive, massively complex problem, but to actually um, you know, pay, pay to address it is not anywhere near as much money as people might, might think, um, yep. that, that then it becomes a much easier, uh, much easier sell. What would be, what would be for that for that shoe company, right? What would the price be to to offset? I mean, I know there's obviously different variables, different size companies and things like that, but is there maybe an average annual cost that you see that businesses can allocate for to be carbon neutral? Yeah, I mean, we we tell we give businesses a rule of thumb of basically somewhere around 0.4% of their revenues. Okay. And so that's not bad at all. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not it's not a large number. I mean, and that's at carbon prices in today's market that, mm-hmm. you know, in the next few years will will probably increase, but not not massively. Let's just say it's three times that one point two percent. Let's say it's five times that. Right? It, it's still not, you know, then you're looking at two percent of revenues. It's still not a, a massive, massive chunk because, um, you know, the prices, economics, markets fluctuate way more wildly than than that. Um, just in, in the course of natural natural cycles, and um, <laughs> and 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 this is an incredibly important problem and uh, to, to solve. And and I think we tr- we're trying to just kind of let people onto the fact that um, even when you look at the macro numbers, the trillions of dollars that are needed to address climate change, the amount of money on an individual unit basis is just not that much. Yeah, yeah, that's what actually surprised me the most is when I was. Uh, looking over the site and doing a little bit of research was kind of the cost efficiency really of of being climate neutral really isn't that extreme, right? I think a lot of people think it's very expensive to do um, business sustainably and environmental friendly. And in some cases it can be depending on what like your supply chain is and the product you're making. But from at a basic level, doing something like this is you can easily budget for it and really not feel the pain of it. And then also you can be very creative around what you do as a company to offset, right? Like if you're doing trees or you're doing other things that are creative, I mean, you can you can create great content and marketing around that, right? And you can kind of find customers in different ways if you if you creative creatively look at ways to to do good right and to be sustainable it, it can uh it can be really powerful and uh that's that's kind of what what we see with a lot of companies that we talk to their differences is that they look at it from from the ground up at a foundational level right mm-hmm. um they look at it as well how could we just have a zero waste supply chain <laughs> mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it's like it's like why not just start there Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand, like, look, companies that are are older and 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 more uh, and just have just have decades in in the marketplace. It's they can't start over from scratch like that. Like some of these different startups can. It's an it can be an advantage for them. But mm-hmm. is it the last question I'll have is <laughs> well, 
one of the two last questions is is zero is and i'm not sure how much you are familiar with it at all but is zero waste even possible in a lot of um, supply chains or is it just like that's just a step that is way down the line and being climate neutral is maybe the first step into your evolution as a sustainable company yeah i i wanted to just respond i'll answer that in a sec i I wanted to respond to something you said earlier to to add something around why companies do this because you got i mean as you were talking i was thinking oh the the other reason we hear a lot which which really gets me really excited about this wings is like oh we're thinking about our our employees and our ability to to attract and Mm. and recruit employees. And what I'm hearing is that people who are in their 20s and and 30s who are looking for a job will often ask in their first interview, what are you doing on sustainability? And it's become this sort of gating factor as to whether an individual wants to work for a company. And I just think that's, that's incredible. I mean, the fact that like the labor market has now been reshaped around this expectation that companies will do the right thing uh, by by society and by by the environment is just is just awesome. Like because companies are nothing without their employees. So that is um, that's a major driver as well. And and we think that this can help communicate, you know, companies pledges um there's there's another thing that you said and, and uh, fine i'll come back to this, <laughs> to this zero waste point, but, <laughs> yeah. but which is you know you got to start with something and that's exactly the mentality that we're trying to get companies to think about and you know we, we're, we're talking we're working with early stage startups who are shaping their entire business around sustainability we're talking right. with very well established companies who have a long history of of work but you know things fairly well entrenched you got to start with something regardless of where you are and that thing needs to be achievable and, and, you know, with realistic expectations about how much time and money you can spend on it. And we also think it should be meaningful uh, and not just, you know, institute an office recycling program and then call yourselves a sustainable business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, but, but on the other hand, don't, don't expect that you that the right thing to or don't don't think that the right thing to do is is spend five years assessing all of your options before you before you do anything. And um, our our head of, of marketing loves the analogy of you know of kind of healthy healthy living or, or living a healthy lifestyle. Which if you're trying to get onto right. um, trying to get onto that track, you know you don't necessarily need to evaluate read every book out there evaluate every program before making a decision just start with something cut meat out of your diet right mm-hmm. um, go to mcdonald's one time fewer per week it's going to make a difference drink it's, more it's water like, drink <laughs> more water thing. totally yeah. yeah and it's like what behavioral change um you know and like life coaches will often say is you got to just start by doing something little every day in your personal life you know ten, if you want to become a writer spend 10 minutes a day writing and that's how it starts. It's not going to be like a massive step change because you'll just if, if you if you set that expectation, it'll never happen. So anyway, back to your back to your question about about zero waste. I mean, waste is at the end of the manufacturing process typically, yep. and so you can reduce waste by making manufacturing more optimized around the amount of of byproduct that you generate. I think for some products, it is certainly conceivable that you can achieve zero waste. I mean, let's just say you're, um, I don't know, take something at the moment. Let's say you're a CBD oil maker and your product is CBD oil. Like, could you go to zero waste by just making sure that every drop of CBD oil that you, that you generate, um, goes into a bottle? Yeah, totally. But what about the, well, what about the bottle manufacturer? Cause you're probably not making the bottles. So then you've got to go upstream and say the bottle manufacturer, are they throwing away 
bits of plastic that they can't figure out how to squeeze into a bottle? Yeah, probably. Like, and it's probably pretty difficult to make it zero waste. But I guess then I would, I would, I would challenge whether it's even that big of an issue if you're throwing away some amount of waste during the process, and that the economic incentive to not throw away raw material is pretty significant because you you buy that raw material. And yep. and so then the question is, well, how much carbon dioxide, how much how much of a climate problem is all that throw thrown away waste? Yeah. And um and yes, there's carbon embedded in everything that you buy. So if you're if you're manufacturing those raw materials with renewable energy, then you're at least getting somewhere. There's something that's starting to happen in California, which is going back to the energy efficiency thing, which is that they're actually shifting policy away from trying to get people to save energy. Mm-hmm. Because because two things are happening. One, efficiency programs have been really successful. And two, there's a lot of renewable energy at certain times of the day because of all this solar. There is actually a surplus of energy. So saving energy at some times of the day is just not important anymore. So then you start to like question, you know, the assumption that simply having simply wasting less is actually like the best the best possible thing. And I'm not saying materials are exactly yep. like that, but you have to kind of assess the relative the relative impacts. And we're not running out of landfill space in the world. You know, we have a huge climate problem, and so things need to be assessed in light of what the real problems are. Yeah, I guess I was uh, it was sparked in my mind because uh, I was reading something the other day where China has stopped taking our trash and basically Mm -hmm. the world's trash. And we've been exporting all that, even our recycled waste, we've been exporting it to China and they stopped taking it. So now we don't really have anywhere to go with it. Like we're trying to ship some to Vietnam now and like all these other small companies, but they, they are not taking it either because it's too much and it's a lot of it's like contaminated and they don't want it. So Mm -hmm. now like we have cities that can't, pick up recycling anymore because they don't have anywhere to go with it mm-hmm. and like all all the waste is just getting it goes to landfills but then it gets burned right so i'm just picturing in my mind it's probably not carbon neutral to burn massive amount of landfill like plastic in landfills and burning that into the atmosphere that's probably not the best scenario but i don't know i just well i mean most most trash in the u.s is not burned actually most trash just does sit and decompose in a landfill or just sit there permanently if it's plastic um, yeah, i think they burn the stuff that they that obviously just can't decompose that they they shift it they separate they separate the ones that, that can decompose to the stuff that can't and then they have to figure out what to do with that yeah there's some there's some waste or trash trash to steam is the old term waste to energy is the new term <laughs> there are definitely some some waste it just sounds nicer right waste yeah, to energy not trash to steam some waste to energy plants that that are still around they're, they're pretty dirty um they're expensive to make because, as you said, like when you pl- when you burn plastic, you get all kinds of dioxins that come off, and dioxins cause cancer. So you've got to capture them before they go into the air. Yeah. Building building the technology to capture those is really expensive. So, but but I mean, but there was carbon that kind of went into that product. So in essence, um, you're just putting that carbon by burning it. You're just basically putting that carbon back out into the atmosphere. So you could kind of argue that manufacturing a plastic toy and then throwing it away and burning it is carbon neutral, although I'm not sure I would take that point of view. Um, but overall, waste is, you know, waste is not a, a glowing environmental crisis. Like there were there were logistical challenges that got people into recycling back in the 70s, where like in New York, because of all the trash coming off of Manhattan, 
Um, there were these barges that were floating. They had nowhere to go. There was a mm. landfill that closed. They had nowhere to go. And so it became right. this visual symbol of, you know, oh, we have all this, this trash problem. But it's just a cost problem and not, not a, like a true environmental problem. And in other words, the cost is, oh, they just need to ship the barge somewhere else and get someone to agree to have a landfill somewhere. And I'm not saying that they're, that's not without challenges and not without, without impacts. But in terms of like fundamentally disrupting the way of life, as we know it on earth, throwing away trash is just not a problem. And, and so the recycling, the cut down and recycling has been an issue because a lot of municipalities rely on revenues from, uh, from selling their recycled waste stream. And yeah. that's how yeah. they, they subsidize their trash collection by, by selling that recycled material. So yeah. that actually becomes an economic issue for municipalities to, to not be able to, um, to send recycled material to China. But frankly, the reason they're not taking it is because as you said, it's a contaminated waste stream and people don't, we don't have the systems and, and behavior to actually be able to send like a stream of, um, you know, of, of cardboard without knowing that there's going to be some metal and plastic in it as well. Yep. And you can't recycle that into high quality material. So mm-hmm. if you're paying China for, or, or, or if, if, you're, if you're selling a, essentially raw material to, to China um, in the form of waste and, you know, and they say it's not high quality enough, like we got to find a better way to, uh, to send a high quality waste stream or we got to find some way to process it locally. Yeah. My, uh, my, my passion is with, uh, with the oceans, man. And it, mm-hmm. it pains me when we, when we just you know throw, throw a lot of, of waste into the ocean. And that, to me, that causes such a, an eco, an economic concern, which I don't understand why we can't see that, you know, if we drive around our highways and our parks, we can't throw trash, you know, don't litter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fine, but we can dump all this stuff in our oceans. It just, just seems so crazy to me that that's what, that's why I try to, I try to think about and talk to people about how can we not <laughs> have all this waste and garbage in our oceans? Because if that goes, Everything else is irrelevant. Everything goes. Yeah, and unfortunately, most of that waste actually comes from land, where yeah. it yeah. washes down, you know, washes down the street into a storm drain out to the ocean, yeah. and then you've got this, and and then a lot of it comes from places that don't have trash collection. Yep. And so their their answer is just to throw it into a river, which then mm-hmm. washes out to the ocean. But there's some pretty inspiring efforts right now um, to kind of deal with ocean health and it's kind of outside the climate neutral space but i've just been pretty amazed there's one called i think it's called um force blue which is a bunch of navy seal veterans who are doing coral replanting coral coral reef conservation and um and so it's a bunch of yeah a bunch of a bunch of seal vets who um, obviously have the skills to dive and they're they're actually Mm. planting Uh, and i heard about this from the guy who's director of marketing for the NFL, I believe, who's got a got a relationship with them and a partnership with them. There's um there's a group that uh, Jacques Cousteau's granddaughter Alexandra Cousteau runs, which um, I can't remember the name of it either, but Ocean's 2050 or something. But they're focusing a lot on on ocean health. And then to bring it back to carbon, I mean, there are carbon offset projects that that can happen that involve yeah. the oceans, planting yeah. kelp, oh, seagrass, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, like turning turning the ocean into a healthy ecosystem, kind of restoring the health of the ocean while at the same time ca- capturing carbon. So it's sort of a win win. So yeah, I mean all, yeah. all the systems are interconnected, and you know if anyone's watched Planet Earth or sorry, um, our planet is, is yep. the one most recently um, from Netflix. I mean it's the it's Netflix an incredible yeah it's an incredible like documentary of the interdependencies of species and ecosystems, which really gets you thinking. Yeah, well, thanks you thank you so much, man. It's been a great educational journey this today for me. So I hope everybody gets uh, 
same thing out of it that I did, but I, I appreciate what you and your team are building. And uh, I think it's important for, for everybody to take that first step, right? Whether it's a consumer or, or in your case, businesses to take a first step into kind of, you know, becoming more sustainable or carbon neutral, whatever you want to call it. I think it's, it, it's all something that is necessary. And I think that uh, when we look at look at organizations like yours and others out there, I think it's, like you said, it's policy and government's not going to take the first step, right? It has to be businesses and then it has to be consumers, you know, trusting those businesses and purchasing from ones that, you know, they believe are, are doing the right things. And, and then amazing people going to work for those companies that are actually being a force in sustainability. So thanks for everything you're doing and best of luck. Well, thanks, Grant. It's been a really awesome conversation. You know, you, you, you had, you've got some, some great questions and um, I'm sorry that you almost failed chemistry when you're growing up, but, um, <laughs> oh, but man. Uh, you seem, you Still seem scars to me. Yeah, I know. I can tell you, you seem to have, you seem to have figured out a way around that though, but no, I, I love what you're doing and um, have enjoyed getting to know, um, the folks that you've interviewed through through the podcast episodes that you have, and so I'm honored to be to be one of them here, and um, and uh, really appreciate the conversation. So thanks.